Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. Welcome to Latter-day Survivors. I'm Christina. I will be hosting this episode today. And we've got with us today, our guest today is Denise. And Denise is someone that reached out to us via our website and submitted a submission to tell her story. Um, Denise is someone that has had a lot of trauma go on in her life. She was a victim of child sexual abuse as a child and has since then suffered multiple losses, including the loss of her religion. Um, and she's she's ready to tell her story and heal. So uh, welcome, Denise, to Latter-day Survivors. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. I really appreciate this opportunity. Absolutely. Um, honestly, I I thought I would go my entire life without ever having to deal with this or address it or even think about it again. Uh, I almost made it. (laughs) I went about 58 years without having to face it or um, have admit that it's been affecting me. Um, It caught up with me in a very big way. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll probably get to that afterwards, but um, yeah, and I just wanted to to start, I wanted to s- state my reasons for wanting to do this. Um, first of all, if I know you do, you know, you have listeners or if anybody comes across this, I just, it's a feeling of, um, it's just nice to know you're not alone. I know when I um, discovered your podcast quite a while back, um, there were things that I thought were unique to my story and Mm -hmm. I found out they weren't. Yeah. And a lot of us are kind of going through the same things and have been affected in, in just multiples, uh, a multitude of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and also I think it's important to shine a light on this subject because it's in the dark, it's in the corner and it's harmful. Absolutely. I feel like, it's been sort of normalized and 
a lot of people maybe wouldn't agree with me on that, but I feel like even, especially within um, um, the Mormon religion, it's kind of normalized and kind of accepted as a part of mm-hmm. life. But um, I don't know, not everybody feels that way. It's been my experience. And um, I just like to encourage prioritizing victims and treatment and not the predator. I, I think that we prioritize the predator and um, the predators, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the victims, that's the top. That's the very top. Mm-hmm. That's who we need to be addressing. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that they just, for the most part, are ignored. Mm-hmm. Ignored and silenced, and, right? And and silenced, and 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 not not even not always in a oppressive way, mm-hmm. but just as because it's easier to not talk about it kind of way. And so people think that um, by just not talking about it, that it will. Um, kind of go away on its own but it doesn't as many of us have discovered a little bit later in life right it does it doesn't yeah. just go away unfortunately yeah yeah and i and i'm still just for any um friends or family that are listening to this i'm still a little bit in my anger phase about some different things and so um just bear with me and um this is just my story this is my truth this is my perspective mm-hmm. And um, I just ask for some empathy and understanding. Yep. Um, I'm angry. I'll, I'll go into it more. But sure. um, so I guess I'll start out just real quick on um, how I came to be. My story starts out with my mom and um, my dad, my biological dad. My mother had um, four kids, and she was pregnant uh, when my dad died. Mm. So I was, and oh goodness, that's a whole big story all on mm-hmm. its own. Um, he was, you know, a director in Hollywood. He was trying to get money to produce the Book of Mormon into a movie. I mean, this was back in the '60s. So, wow. um, anyway, he he actually was a treasure hunter, and he died seeking the treasure. Wow. So yeah, it's a, it's a crazy, bizarre story, but she, so she was pregnant with her fifth. I was second to the oldest and I had just turned four. Oh, wow. She was a busy mom. So there was a lot of, um, we were a lot of of us. Yeah. And so, um, she was widowed. Her, her family had a meeting and kind of decided what she should do with her life and, she um, had gone to BYU and she was just a couple credits short to be able to get a teaching certificate. So they had her go to Berkeley and she finished up her degree so that she could teach and um, be able to do that. She had to kind of farm us kids out. So she, um, she kept me and my older brother. We were the two oldest, but then um, the other, the others, she gave away to other families to raise for a few months until she could, gather us all back in together as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, she did that. She graduated. She was a school teacher. She, um, she taught kindergarten. 
she bought a little house in Northern California. And um, so then we were all together in our little house in Northern California. Um, we had a housekeeper from Sweden. Her name was Vicky. So, you know, my mom had some support, mm -hmm. but um, she's beautiful. My mother's just beautiful. And at that time they had um, in the church, they had, they called it special interests, which was adults past a certain age, you know, I guess adults that were single. Mm -hmm. it's, I, it's, I'm vaguely it's, remembering this. Like it's sounding kind of familiar to me. Yeah. 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 It's not young single adults. It's, you know, once you age out of mm -hmm. that. Um, so she was going to some of their dances and things. And that's how she met my stepdad. And he fell madly in love with her basically on site. And they have a, a sweet, sweet love story. But um, so they got married. My mom had five. My dad had four. So there were nine kids at the wedding. Wow. And um, later on, they had three. So it's a big family, a, a big family of his, hers, and ours of mm -hmm. 12 overall. But for the most part, we didn't all live in the same house at the same time because of the age differences. And also because my dad, so my stepdad is who I'm going to be calling my dad from here okay. on out. He's really the only dad I know. Uh, I never, I have no memories of my biological father. Mm-hmm. So from here on out, my dad is my dad, and he was divorced, so he kind of had shared custody with his kids with his ex-wife. Mm. So that's why not everybody was all in the house at the same time. He had three older boys, and his youngest was a daughter, and she and I are a month apart. Oh, wow. So we're kind of, we're, we're the same age. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then, so it was stair straps. His, all his kids are older. And then, then my mom's kids worked into the, into the ages there. And then, mm -hmm. anyway, so I was seven years old when they got married and the stepbrothers that came into our home, um, they basically, the boys started living with us right away. The daughter, the youngest daughter that was my age, I'm going to say her name. She has, um, she's passed away. Hmm. she um died probably 10 15 years ago from diabetes wow um so she's she and i are the same age um she never lived with us okay she she visited mm -hmm. you know when my dad would have his weekends and things and um but she never lived with us but the three older boys did because they were a handful and they were i don't know what went on in their life before they came to us but by the time they came to us um, it just wreaked a lot of havoc in our lives. Mm. And so that's where a lot of my anger comes right now with my dad and coping. Um, cause he just brought this into our lives and it, I might swear sometimes it kind of yeah. effed us all up. Yeah. Um, so seven years old and one time when sherry was visiting us oh and we all had to cram into this tiny little three-bedroom house that my mom had bought all on her own oh wow you know as a kindergarten teacher so when they got married um, my dad moved in to her house and brought the boys so we had rearranging of rooms and i don't know how we all fit in but um there were bunk beds or 
It's so fuzzy. My brother, my old, the oldest brother, the oldest stepbrother had a room and we didn't, we didn't really have a TV too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so the oldest brother had um, a TV in his room. And so it was a real treat to be able to watch TV. And um, one night he and I, um, me and Sherry were in, he was letting us watch TV. And that's when I found out that Sherry was really used to doing this, but um, he would have her lay on her back and then he kind of um, would like get on top of her Mm. and it was, he was trying to hover as much as possible, but it was like a dry hump Mm -hmm. and she showed me that that's what he likes and then traded places and so I laid down and I can remember laying on my back and then just turning my head to the side and just looking at the TV and I just, my brain just went into the TV Mm -hmm. and he did whatever he was doing on top of me and I didn't, I had no idea what was going on, Mm -hmm. Um, but I instinctively knew that it was secret and odd wrong somehow yeah it it, I knew it wasn't right but I didn't know what was going on it can I ask how old he was what the age difference was between you and him he was 15 oh he was quite a bit older okay Mm -hmm. okay and um he and so that and that happened a few more times, um, but he wasn't my main abuser. Wow. He um, so that was when I was seven and you know and eight and in in during those years. And what's interesting, he when I turned eight in July, my sister Sherry Kay turned eight in August and then he turned 16 in September and so they had us wait and get baptized um, after he turned 16 so that he could baptize Sherry Kay because he would be old enough Mm -hmm. in the Mormon religion to be a priest and the priest can baptize right so my dad confirmed us both but Gordon baptized her and I mean it didn't I had it all seemed very normal to me. Yeah. Um, also, these brothers were, they, they teased us mercis- mercilessly. He, they, they, there was a lot of, um, they were on drugs. They started drugs at a very young age. Wow. They got my nine-year-old brother um, on drugs so mm. that he wouldn't tell on them. Um, his life was basically... Um, fucked up from there on yeah um he also anyway um i can remember one time they had my little brother rustin and they were teasing him so bad and he was crying and crying and these three older boys were they had him um like in a beach towel and they kind of rolled him up like a long ways like a 
burrito and then one would hold each end and they would swing him like a jump rope mm. and he was just screaming and terrified and mm. crying and um you know and I watched this and he was he was just screaming for help and I couldn't help him and it was just you know when you're little it's just such a power powerless feeling yes um anyway about a week and a half after I turned 8 um these stepbrothers they had built a fort in our backyard and so if you can picture the side of your house and how there's a fence that divides the front yard from the backyard, and then there's the side fence that divides your yard from the neighbor's yard, and it, and it has that little side yard there. Mm-hmm. So they added um, a little roof and a, and a wall, and they made a fort. Mm-hmm. And you had to kind of crawl through maybe three or four sawhorses to even get into it. And it was their clubhouse, and we weren't allowed to go in there. Um, that's where they would smoke their pot. But um, so they had all that paraphernalia in there. And um, one day, uh, my my parents were going out on a date. They went to a play in San Francisco. And um, my brothers, my stepbrothers went to Mutual. And um, the us five little kids, we had a babysitter. And oh my goodness, we would terrorize the babysitter. We were <laughs> just we were just feral little children. We were just Yeah. With everybody working and gone all the time. We were just we I learned early on. We just kinda had to fend for ourselves. And anyway, I had concocted this crazy dream, this that I was gonna do. I was sitting on my front porch and I was thinking, I'm gonna cl- climb in my mom's window I'm going to put her coat on and I'm going to get a stool and I'm going to stand out front and say pretend I was my mom home from the day you know like I, that would fool the babysitter so I was I was coming up with this big plan to play this trick on this babysitter and then I could but I could hear this screaming mm. so I ran around to the side of the house and that fort was on fire <gasps> oh my heavens and um my little brother Reston who was just um, under me in age, so he was six. He um, was in there, mm. and he was had been playing with their matches that the stepbrothers left in there, and it started on fire. Um, I could hear him screaming, and I I yelled back to him, "I'm coming, Reston. We're helping you, Reston." And I ran in, and I told the babysitter the fort was on fire, and he called. Um, back then, you dialed zero. Mm-hmm. You know, he called the fire department, which amazing that he just he looked right at me and believed me and picked it up and um we had a guy a boy babysitter and then um the fire department came and me and um while they were on their way me and my my brother that's just older than me my biological brother we ran to the neighbors and were knocking on the doors asking for help and I can remember just hugging the light pole and watching my neighbors come running from the yards Mm. uh, through the yards we um since we were Bratty little kids. We um, played in the water all the time. So my parents had taken off the little handles from the hose bibs. Oh, man. And, um, but I, I knew where it was. I ran in the kitchen and it was on the windowsill, but I was just little, you know. Mm-hmm. So by that time, um, the neighbors had hoses and then the fire department came. But I held that little handle and I still had it in my hand the next day. But um, anyway, uh, we sat in our neighbor's car and watched the fire and watched them put it out and then somehow we 
we were swooped up and taken to a ward member's house and we spent the night there and I I remember waking up in the morning and I and walking through the hallway and I glanced into the master bedroom and my parents were in there in bed and I can remember seeing my mom's face and it was just covered with um, mascara she'd been crying mm. and um, I didn't know it but um, they told us later that Rustin died in that fire oh Denise um yeah oh it was um I'm so sorry it was so hard it was so hard um and he was such a, a sweet little boy oh um, so anyway, um, life goes on. We, my mom and dad, um, bought a lot in the same town where we lived in Northern California, but, um, they needed bigger house. So they bought a lot and they built a house and my dad and the brothers were able to do a lot of work on it mm-hmm. as well. Cause he's just really good that way. He's so good at construction, but we moved up to a bigger house up on a hill and that's about when my the the third oldest stepbrother I'm going to say his name um because I mean he can you know he can rot in hell as far as I'm concerned Mm -hmm. um his name was Randy and he was actually the funnest one out of the brothers Mm -hmm. he had the funnest personality he wasn't quite um as mean um he was still a big tease. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, he just had more of a personality. And, um, he started sexually molesting me. And, um, at first I would be like asleep and he would come in and, you know, and touch me in places. And then, um, I would stay pretending to be asleep. Um, and I, and I still, I didn't know what was going on, but I, I still knew it was supposed to be a secret. Mm-hmm. Um, of my biological family, the five of us, there were three boys and two girls. So it was boy, girl, girl, boy, 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 or boy, boy. And, um, Rustin died, so then there was four of us, and um, I apologize because this is her story, but that's okay. Um, I I think that um, I know that my sister was being abused as well, mm. and um, so somehow my parents got wind that this might be going on, and there was a night they questioned us and they asked specifically and I didn't, I had the opportunity to tell and I didn't tell. Mm -hmm. There was something about it. I couldn't bring myself to tell. I was something about, I learned early, early on to be the nice guy to people, please to Mm -hmm. want to make everybody happy. Um, I felt like, I was there to meet others' needs. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I learned that other than just all those different things combining. Um, I couldn't, I, I, it was stuck in my throat. I couldn't tell. Mm -hmm. 
and they brought us in a couple times to make sure and I still didn't tell but I think maybe my sister did but anyway um, nothing really happened after that um, I just can I can I interject for a minute yes uh-huh I, I just want you to I am and you may know this I'm, I'm sure you know this and so you probably don't need me to say this but I just I just want to honor the fact that kids kids are put in an impossible situation and we so often look back and we think I could have told and I didn't tell I, I could have said something and I didn't say anything because our bodies silence us because we have to survive it's a survival mechanism and so that's that's a a normal response for a child they instinctively know that if i tell things might get worse if i tell i might get in trouble i might they might blame me or i might have some responsibility and kids are at the kids your whole life as a child is dependent on your caregivers and dependent on the people around you we're silenced as children because we have to survive it's i just i just want to acknowledge that that in some ways i've come to understand that i think it's i think it's a really um actually a good thing that our bodies do that because we have to get through it right we have to we have to survive it now we knowing what we know now we can have these conversations more with kids and we can open things up but back then we didn't talk about this stuff and there was no, no nobody there did. was and there was no therapy it's not like they would have sent you to therapy and i'm not this is not a diss on your parents at all this is just a product of their time too it would have been okay we'll stop doing that okay everybody go on your merry way like if we have a conversation and tell you to stop it's just going to magically stop and i think kids know this they know it and so they 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 remain silent and it's confusing right because your body also, you know, it's being um, stimulated sexually and, yes. um, and I don't want it. I didn't invite it and I don't want it, but there's this also the little, it's stimulated. Yep. And so you get those little butterflies or something and it's you think very well, so confusing. What's, what's wrong with me? You know, what do I, what I don't, I, it's just so confusing. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going on. Absolutely. Um, so with such a big family, we really didn't ever really take like big vacations like to Disneyland or places like that. But we did every summer drive to Utah to go visit relatives. That was our vacation. <laughs> and for me, it was like, oh, was all these <laughs> great, great uncles and aunts and people I didn't know. But when we got to see some cousins we liked, that was fun. But sure. we had this big, long road trip from Cali Northern California to Utah. My dad had a camper shell on the back of his truck. Um, it was just a really basic kind, and it had a long bench on each side and then a place for the table in the middle, and the table could slide out or slide in. So, you know, Tetris, with all the kids, it seemed to make logical sense to put the biggest boy with the smallest girl on one side, then the second biggest boy with the second biggest girl on the other side, so that would be me and my brother. And then the others in the middle on the floor. And so, yeah, I was um, put in the back of the truck. 
there, you know, we were isolated because there weren't, it was just a shell on a camper. So it wasn't like we could talk through to the cab right, or anything. It was just a shell. And um, we drive to Utah and basically my brother would have his hands on me the whole way there, mm. the whole way back. Because it was, you know, it was dark. We drove a lot at night. Mm-hmm. And through the worst part, you know, we would drive all night. That was just what you did then. Right. And um, he, like I said, I would pretend to be asleep, but I didn't. I didn't. So it was pretty invasive. Yeah. With him. And um, there were a couple of summers that was really bad. There was one summer in particular. Um, well, even during the whole trip there, he would do things and yeah, he would, he would have me like, he would give me like a piggyback ride, but he would like put me on his shoulders, you know, mm-hmm. up high mm-hmm. against his neck, but he would take my underwear off mm-hmm. and put me, um, have his, be on his shoulders like that and. I mean, just all kinds of, just. Yeah. So with him, it lasted until I was 14. Wow. So between, for those seven years, between the ages of seven and 14, I was abused quite a bit. But um, mostly it was this, for years with this, with my Randy and, um, and I know that it was happening to cousins and things too. Mm. Um, so it's hard to, to know that I didn't tell it was happening to others. I mean, I just, you just, you just don't know. You, and you know, that's not your fault. That's, that's something that so many victims express that if I had just told maybe Maybe we could have stopped it from happening to somebody else, but, but you were a child and that wasn't your responsibility and you were in survival mode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to look back through our adult eyes. It's so, cause we have so much, we have such a different understanding through our adult eyes of, oh, you know, so easy, right? If I had just said something, yeah, we could have prevented this. It's not, it's. It's a completely different situation when you're a child. That was not your fault. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, he, so I was living, um, so I was very insecure in the home. And we would go through a period of time where nothing would happen. And then I would let my guard down. Um, but um, there was a lot of contention and a lot of yelling in this house. My dad had a horrible temper it flared up immediately and we were so mormony mormon it's like there's so much contention in the house that my parents are like okay well we need to really buckle down Mm -hmm. and they were you know they'd make we get up at 5 30 for scripture study and then the boys would go to early morning seminary and then we'd have family prayer every morning and night and we'd try to have 
family home evening every Sunday, which, you know, a lot of times we joked it turned into family fight night, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that's a common thing with yeah. lots of people, but I think you're right. I don't know why we get all stressed out about it, but <laughs> we're just, you get stressed out about having the, the lesson on time and who's doing it and, mm-hmm. and what are we, you know, we're going to eat and who gets to do that. Da, 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 da. And by the t- everybody's emotions are running high. And by the time it's happening, everybody's, it never goes perfectly like the mother would would just fantasize about right you know we're gonna be this happy family we're gonna sometimes it worked out and it was fun but also it was really kind of chaotic Mm -hmm. and um um my dad was in the bishopric and you know we we were strict we we had to wear our church clothes on sunday we couldn't um, watch tv listen to to bad music um i say bad music i'm i don't want to call it what my dad called it but um he didn't want to listen to rock music, right? Especially on Sundays. Um, they tried to just really to clamp down, but that made the brothers rebel more and worse, mm-hmm. and they weren't coping. And I don't know what was going on in their messed up lives. And um, they would, um, Randy. I mean, everybody knew how to pick the locks, you know, in the house on the bathrooms and everything. And mm. I would. Um, I found out the only way really to stay safe when I went to the bathroom would be to, um, the way the door opened into the bathroom, there was a, there was a drawer right next to it. So if I opened up the drawer, then if somebody picked the lock and opened the door, it would hit the drawer Yeah, and they couldn't get in. Um, there's this one time though, he was so intent on still getting in that he took a screwdriver and he just poked the drawer and just shoved it Oh my gosh! back in. And I was in the shower. Oh. Um, and we were screaming and I was trying to fight and push him out of the shower. And it was one of those kind of clear fiberglassy mm. kind of showers. Mm-hmm. And um, later on that evening, when no one was in the bathroom, it, the shower exploded. That glass, oh that fiberglass gosh. went everywhere. And I think it was from the tensions of us fighting with that door and him pushing and me pulling or me, pu- you know, all yeah. of that fighting that it just as that plastic or whatever it was fiberglass relaxed and to it sh- back to its shape it just it just exploded wow. and it was in every corner of that tiny room it sounded like a bomb went off but you know it was just it was from that it was from our big fight and and the upstairs bathroom was the same way he'd come in while I was showering and I'd I'd scream and wrap the sh- I didn't want to be seen naked you know right that's normal um, yeah I I you know by this time I was like 10 11 mm-hmm. and and 12 and um so it was um it was awful but you know i also knew these things were happening to my friends and uh one time when i was beehive uh when i was a beehive i was in the beehive presidency and, and beehives are um the 12 and 13 year old girls in the lds mm-hmm. church the youth group is um divided by ages and so the youngest um, of the youth group were the beehives, the girls. And um, I was I was in the presidency meeting. We, we would pick a president and counselors. And um, oh gosh, we walked everywhere. You know, we mm-hmm. it was in the seventies. We didn't expect rides anywhere, right? <laughs> and I, we would have to walk the longest way. And I I think it was probably easily two miles that I would walk to my leader's house for presidency meeting and. Me and my um, friend, I, I walked down the hill to her house, and then we walked to our 
leader's house and we, ha- we went through the school grounds. Mm-hmm. And this one day when we were going through the school dr- grounds, this, um, there was a, this group of boys that were our age were there and we were walking through and they decided that they wanted to put their hand up my friend's shirt. She was really a fun personality, really flirty. And they decided to just gang up on her wow. and they didn't like me. Cause I wasn't, you know, as cute and bubbly as she was, but, um, they all were trying to hold her down and all taking a chance at grabbing her boob. And, uh, we were 12 and she was screaming, Denise, help me, Denise, help me. And I just stood there with my arms crossed. I felt completely powerless. Mm-hmm. I felt completely frozen. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. I didn't think I could do anything. I was frozen. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the boys was actually in our church class. So I knew who he was. And, um, but we, they finally, you know, ran off and we continued on our way to our Princey meeting and we told our president, we were crying and we told our, our leader about it. And first I was amazed when I saw the expression on her face, she was shocked. Um, and I thought, oh, wow, she's shocked that that really was wrong what they did. Mm-hmm. Like it was, I was just so. <sighs> Cause everything had been normalized. It's just so it's normalized. So normalized. Yeah. It seems like a rite of passage, you know, this is just what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I, a girl in my fifth grade class told me one time that she was asleep on her couch and she woke up with her stepdad's hand down her pants. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Don't you hate that they do that? And so this is how I'm, this is my, worldview this is how i'm being raised yep. is that um um our men are predators mm-hmm. basically all men mm-hmm. and um our bodies are objects and and that these 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 boys had needs and you couldn't stop them right. that's just kind of that's just kind of how I grew up. Well, and, um, and then it, and then that kind of, I mean, it kind of doesn't stop, right? Because even as we get older, the message, you know, I don't know that it was overtly said, but, and, and I don't want to speak for you, but I, I just know so many other people, myself included, where this message then became when you get married, kind of obey your husband and, do things to please him. And it was just, it was just kind of like you said, it was just this worldview. Like this is what boys and men did. And it's just kind of normal. Yes. Yeah. And I'll get into that too more, how it affected in my marriage. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, it was just so also in junior high, I mean, there was boys that would go around and they would, you know, they'd grab your ass. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, there's this one boy in particular that he would just stick, he'd come up behind you and stick his, his middle finger all the way from behind, all the way up into your vagina, you know, and we all, you did that to every girl in the hallway, just grab, 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 grab. Wow. And then just like, you know, we're just like, oh, this is disgusting. Get away from me. I hated it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, um, I never felt like I had the power to to just shut it down mm-hmm. 
other than just like, ew, you know, get away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's just how I felt like that's how all boys were. Um, so anyways, I, in my beehive class, I don't know when I didn't have one. There was like five of us girls in Northern California. So the church is re- at that time, especially it was very much more spread out. Yeah. Uh, we, we considered ourselves living in what's called the mission field, you know, mm-hmm. where it's, um, in, in this huge town in Arizona, there, I mean, in, um, Utah, there probably would be, you know, 16 wards, but this town in California, it, it had one. And actually we, when we first started, when we were, we didn't even have a ward in that town. We had to go with adjoining towns, you know, until we were able to have our own ward. And, yeah. um, but every girl in this, in this class, um, was sexually abused. And I knew it and, you know, we just all knew it. That's was. Wow. Um, one of my friends was abused by, um, this family, the, the dad, when she went camping with them to help them babysit their children. Wow. And, um, you know, and that man, he got a a talking to, Mm -hmm. because that one came out and he got a talking to, but. That's as far as it went, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it just and that reinforces your need to stay silent, right? Because you know nothing's actually going to happen. Like, you know, there nobody's ever going to be held accountable, so we can't speak up either. It just seemed like that was just like what happens, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You you go outside and you get mud on your shoe, right? You know? Yeah. It was just it's like that. Yeah. Um, and for me, it it kind of I had this innate subservience, like innately I knew I just, I, I just, I knew I was an object and Mm -hmm. I had a role. Um, so in the meantime, um, the fighting with the stepbrothers and my parents, um, it took up it, it sucked up all of the oxygen in our home. Mm, yeah. And I think the rest of our kids' emotional needs were severely neglected because these boys were taking all, everything, all of the oxygen out of the home. And the fight was always on them. If they were, they were always fighting about going to church, fighting about drugs, fighting about school, fighting about, um, just every boundary. And um, my stepbrother, Randy, um, had a girlfriend named Vicki. And um, of course, they started having sex right away. And, you know, at one point, the boys ran away from home. And how they did it was they, my parents were gone. And so they had us go to a ward member's house and they, they loaded up my dad's truck and the camper shell with um, a bunch of our food supply. Cause you know, we had all the food supply, right? The year supply, food storage and the guns. Mm-hmm. And they took off with this truck. And at, 
the the boys the, took off or your parents took off with it? The boys oh, did. Oh, the boys did. They stole the, uh-huh. And they got across state lines um, and they actually had knocked a window out of the back and had one of their guns poking out the back and they were, I mean, they're just so stupid. And they were caught in Idaho trying to run away from the cops. And so they were brought back and, you know, here's this broken window. I mean, they were just out of control. Yeah. And um, one night after, um, so by this time I'm in mutual and my, my stepbrother's in mutual as well. The oldest brother actually ended up going on a mission and he was kind of gone during this time. Mm-hmm. Um. And like I said, I mean, Randy was the fun one and we were having, we had such a fun time at Mutual that night. I don't know if we were singing or all together. I mean, it, it was just so fun. Our ward was our, such our family there because yeah. we were so spread out. It was just really close and really tight knit. And um, we had this great time at Mutual. We came home and we were just on a high and laughing. And he's like, Denise, let's go sleep under the stars. I'm like, okay. You know, and it had been a minute. It had been a while since he'd done anything. So I'm like, okay, he's fun and we're okay now. He's leaving me alone. So we got our sleeping bags. We went out in the backyard and we're sleeping outside in the backyard together. And, of course, he totally um, came on very hard. And this time, you know, I'm wide awake. I'm fighting him off. And saying no 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 and mm. he, he forced himself and it was just not um it was just it was just awful it was invasive and i just actually I, I i think i came to tears and i was just begging him to just stop and leave me alone and i think that finally broke through to him and he said okay and he stopped and he said you know he he wanted to explain something to me and he told me that he and his girlfriend had been having sex and he said that um, she had missed a period mm. and so they were worried that she was pregnant and so they they confessed to the bishop and um, because of that along with I think his drug problems um, they were going to have a church court mm. and he was 17 and um so I felt bad for him mm -hmm. and we went to sleep. And the next morning though, it was getting, it was hot as the sun came up. So I went into, um, in the house, in the family room, I was still tired because it was like five o'clock in the morning. So I went back to sleep just inside the door of the, of the family room and he came in and he started attacking me again. And, I was trying to get away and I finally got away and I was crawling as hard as I could across the floor and I got a really bad rug burn on my knee and that hurt for a long time. Um, but anyway, not long after that, he was excommunicated. Wow. And which is kind of shocking to excommunicate a 17 year old boy for, and, and it turned out his girlfriend wasn't pregnant. Um, but I mean, he had sex, so yeah, I, it, it wouldn't happen in this day and age. They wouldn't excommunicate a boy like that. Right. Um, they would disfellowship him. They would, they would do some, you know, they would have consequences for him for sure. But 
they wouldn't kick him out of the, the church. And the thing is, my dad was the first counselor in the bishopric. Mm. I mean, he was part of the group that did this to him. Right. And um, it was very traumatic, actually, for my brother. And he left the family. And he didn't speak to the family for at least 40 years. Did you say 40? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 30 to 40 years. Um, and, and shortly after that also. So this was when I was like just turned 14. I was 13 when I think the last, I think I was 14. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We moved to Utah. So he didn't come. Mm. In fact, none of the step-siblings came. Um, well, I guess the oldest one did. He was back from his mission. And um, and so he did He did move with us to Utah. But I basically, those other two step-brothers, Randy and the, and the other middle one, we didn't hear from them again. And, and, be, and because she's gone, I do want to acknowledge my sister Sherry Kay and the hard life that she had. Um, obviously she was being abused. She was old, old hat by the time I knew her at seven years old. Wow. She was used to all of it. Yeah. And, um, she told me when she was 10 that, um, the other, the second of the oldest brother, Robbie, I'm going to say his name. He, um, he lived a lot with his real mom. He didn't live with us as much. He was really kind of a tricky kid to have around. And um, so he lived with his mom and Sherry Kay. And they had a, like a enclosed garage in their backyard that they kind of had like as a garden shed or something. And there was a cot in there. And anyway, she told me when she was 10 years old that she told me that he raped her and I didn't know that was the, I didn't have that word then. Yeah. But she explained that, um, that their wiener got hard or whatever. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. And she, whatever, she, whatever she explained to me, I, I know now that that was rape mm-hmm. and it was often, mm. it was her, it was her life. It was her norm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, ended up having um moving in with my main abuser brother R- Randy and his girlfriend Vicky and the three of them were in a relationship together mm. so Randy and his blood sister mm-hmm. and his girlfriend um he kind of married his girlfriend but he took on her last name mm-hmm. and they were all in an incestual threesome together for quite a while. And she had a very traumatic, disturbing life. Her stepdad traumatized her as well. Uh, And and when you uh, say her stepdad, are you talking about Sherry or are you talking about Vicki? Sherry Kay. Sherry Kay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My sister. Uh, When she was about probably 10 or 11 was when she was diagnosed with, um, juvenile diabetes you know and so that's a big deal 
Uh, yes. We almost lost her. I mean, she was in the hospital for quite a while. And um, I mean, it was a big, big deal. And she had to um, learn how to give herself insulin shots. And anyway. It almost makes me wonder if that happened to her, if that was a, a trauma response from her body. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but it it just makes me wonder that you know our bodies do some really wild things in the face of trauma, and mm-hmm. you know it's not super common to get juvenile diabetes, and it. I just it, certainly the abuse didn't help any, for sure. No. Yeah. No, she was um, very, very traumatized. Um, she had. As an adult, she had an eating disorder for a while. She, um, yeah, the diabetes, it, it, it didn't exactly run in our family. I mean, it did, um, on my dad's side when they were older, but right. that's not uncommon right? for once you, in old age, mm-hmm. but the juvenile part. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, she also was able to come out later in life as, um, as a lesbian Mm -hmm. and she was able to have a very happy lesbian relationship. Good for her. And eventually her, um, I mean, obviously they weren't married, but they wish they could be, they were together and her significant other, um, passed away. Oh my goodness. So then she was alone again. And, um, anyway, she eventually died from diabetes. Yeah. And I, don't know that she was taking care of herself. Yeah. yeah. So she had a very tragic life. Um, and that was like, I guess she was in her forties. Wow. So young. Yeah. Um, so we moved to Utah and that was a huge culture shock because we were so used to this happy Ward family. And there's something about, Oh, I hate to say it, Utah Mormons, but like, I didn't know, like everybody was Mormon, everybody, everybody in my school. And also it was Northern California to very rural area of mm-hmm. Utah. And so, um, it was like cowboys and, um, I just wasn't used to the ruralness of it. The, yeah, it was like my clock was turned back 10 years and, um, but I made some good friends Mm-hmm. Um, so when we moved to Utah, um, obviously that was the end of any kind of sexual molestation. Thank goodness. Yeah. And I think that if we hadn't moved, um, I don't, I don't, yeah, we can't play the guessing game. Mm -hmm. I think I might've ended up being more promiscuous. But I wasn't, I was kind of um, shy mm-hmm. around boys. And I don't know, I don't think I was the cutest thing, but um, it wasn't a problem in Utah. It was, um, I didn't have a boyfriend till I was a senior. Mm-hmm. And once, but this boyfriend, I did fall madly in love with me, with him. I, I didn't know it. He didn't know it. He was actually on his way to becoming a full-blown narcissist, but. Wow. Um, 
by the end of our relationship, you know, I was, he was telling me, you know, how to part my hair, what color nail polish to use, what clothes to wear. He was buying, going shopping with me and picking out my clothes. He, mm. um, I worked, I've always worked, I worked since I was 15. Um, but he would use my money to pay for our dates and his gas and mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but I, I was such a people pleaser. I had such a problem saying no. I could not say no ever. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but the church was really important to me and we get all these lessons about keeping yourself clean and worthy and chastity. And, you know, um, Bishop interviews, you know, since I was 12 and they would, they would ask if you ever masturbated and I didn't, if you had a problem with masturbation, I don't even know what that word meant. Right. But I could tell from the tone it was something to say no to, mm -hmm. but I wasn't really sure what that word meant. It was a little iffy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't ask because that would seem to be embarrassing. Um, anyway, uh, I did end up, you know, making out quite a bit with my boyfriend. We graduated high school and um, spent that summer after high school together and we ended up having sex and then confessing to the bishop about it and we told not to take the sacrament for a couple weeks and he wound up um putting his mission papers in mm. even though we you know we really struggled with this and he got called on his mission and he went through the temple and eve after he went through the temple he like he basically he basically came, attacked me one night mm. and, um, and forced himself on me. It just, he, he, he couldn't help it. I mean, he was just, anyway. Yeah. Um, but he went into the MTC and in the MTC, he got, I mean, they, the high pressure in there, you, you got to repent of everything. You're going to. And he would just, he was just breaking down and yeah. he was calling me and saying, it's so awful. I can't do this. And when he left on his mission, it was such a huge relief to me. Sure. Um, I, I was sad that he was going, but then also it's like my, this fog lifted mm -hmm. and my life cleared up. Um, everything became brighter. Yeah. And I was ready for that relationship to be over. I had promised him all these things, but I didn't mean them. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted him to stay out there. So um, while he was on his mission, I worked at I worked at a radio station. Mm. And um, uh, I was uh, the DJ in the evenings and the weekends and... Um, my husband and my ex-husband, um, I didn't know who he was at the time. They, he and his partner had a video store and they started advertising and on the radio and they were started doing like this little top 10 countdown. It was just a little, it was just a little AM station in this little hick town in yeah. Utah. And, um, so that's how I met him. He started coming into the station to record their show and I would, um, I would produce it, you know, do all the tech work and everything for it. And, um, that's how I met him. And he was just coming out of a relationship. And so we started dating. We met in April. 
I was 19 and um, he proposed to me on my birthday in July for my 20th birthday and we got married in August. Wow. And so no, was we, he uh, was he a member of the church? Yes. Okay. Yes. And you know, he um his he has a, you know, a really he had a rough childhood. Mm-hmm. Um and he didn't grow up terribly active in the church, but um you know, his parents were divorced, so he had two families. Yeah. that he was juggling back and forth. And so one lived in California and one lived in this town in Utah. Um but he so he would come to Utah all the time to visit his dad and there was a, a kind of a, a bishop at the time in Utah that kind of took him under his wing and he got him out on a mission. And so ever since then, I mean, my husband was very strong in the church. He got, you know, activated at mission age and that was it. He was um, yeah, very, very strong in his belief and his testimony. And it, it came at a good time for him and it saved him. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. Turned his life around and, um, so yeah, we got married in the Salt Lake Temple. We were, um, we were married. Our officiant was, uh, Thomas S. Monson. Wow. Uh, who for uh, who? My, and if, if, if we have listeners that are not familiar with Mormon culture and religion, Thomas S. Monson would go on to become the prophet of the church later on. Yeah. Yeah. He was, um, yeah, deal. he was either in the first presidency or the very least in the quorum of the 12, he, mm-hmm. yeah. And a few years later he became the prophet. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them had houses in this little town where I lived mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the general authorities. And so, um, he knew my husband, my husband would paint his fence. And so when we were engaged, you know, my husband's like, Hey, will you marry us? And he's like, sure. And at that time, I don't think he was supposed to be marrying people, but oh, we had this connection and he knew him by, you know, yeah. on first name basis, you know, by sight. Um, so he was our officiator. And so that was kind of cool. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Anyway, we had this, you know, we had a really good life and four kids. And um, um, I went on through my life. But, you know, I feel like ever since that first minute of disassociating when I was seven years old. Um, and ever since I first pushed all of that down in. It was there. I thought it was pushed away. It was gone, but it wasn't. It was living in my body. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was such a people pleaser and such a, I wanted to be everything for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad even told me in high school, he said, when he was talking to me about dating, that it's up to the girl to make sure things don't go too far. He said, mm-hmm. the boys are incapable of putting on the brakes. Yeah. And that's a message a lot of us got growing up. And what's wrong with that message? <laughs> because the boys are capable of putting on the brakes. Mm-hmm. They are taught and we are taught mm-hmm. that they are not. Well, and and it, so why would they? Right. And it, and it makes it so hard because then as girls, we not only have the weight of the responsibility for our own behaviors, but now we've got the weight of the responsibility for their behaviors when really we can't control their behaviors, but you know, it, it goes along with kind of the teachings about not showing your shoulders and things like that, because it's tempting for them. And like you say, then they won't be able to turn to stop, put the brakes on. Right. Cause you know, 
shoulders are such a sexual object and, and heaven forbid that they see a shoulder and, and get a heart on. And then once right. they get a heart on, well, they have to do right. something with it. Exactly. So now I mean, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, um, and they're getting taught the same message. Right. You know, the girls have to dress a certain way or else they're going to get these feelings. Right. And that's really toxic and messed up. Mm-hmm. For, for both, for both the girls and the boys, it's messed up for everybody. Yeah. And, and that was reinforced to me, like my, my boyfriend had said, well, how come you didn't, like after we were well into our relationship, it's like, how come you didn't push me away? Um, or how come you didn't try harder to push me away? Cause I did at first. Cause that's what a girl does. Oh, you, you know, they put their hand up, they have to try and then you push it away and then they have to try anyway. And then right. you like do this dance and, and I, and I was wondering to myself, well, could I have, was that, I wasn't in charge of that, you know, right. but I just, I just remember that moment. And then even when I was engaged and I did tell my soon to be husband that I, I felt had this big weight on my shoulders. Like I needed to tell him that I had had sex with somebody mm-hmm. and, um, so I was crying and I, I could barely get it out. And I finally said that, you know, I had had sex before and he just went, Oh, no wonder. I went, huh? No wonder what? I said, what, what do you mean? No wonder. He's like, never mind." And I think he was just saying that because even with him with making out, I didn't mm-hmm. make him stop. Um, as far as he wanted to go was probably as far as I would go, you know, yeah. If he stopped, then I stopped. I mean, I didn't push him anywhere. And he was waiting for me to stop him. Yeah. Right. If you don't, if you don't stop me, then I'm, then I'm going to make the assumption that it's okay. Not really getting explicit consent, but you didn't say no. So therefore that made it okay. Yeah. And why? It's just, it's so wrong to place that on the girls. Mm Mm-hmm. The boys need to be taught about consent. Yes. They need to be be taught about safety and consent. And that's my big thing is, um, and they can also, they are definitely in control of themselves. They can choose. Right. Just because they, they have a heart on or something doesn't mean that they have to somehow let that be fulfilled in whatever way it takes. Exactly. It's just so ridiculous. Well, and two, by not teaching them about consent, we're actually, we're actually insulting them because we're, we're, by saying you don't have any control over your own feelings, that's kind of an insult to their intelligence as well. Absolutely. Of Of course you can control that. Of course you can. Yeah. Right. We all are in charge of our own selves. We have, exactly. we should feel like we have that autonomy. I never felt like I had autonomy. Um, but so you can, so in my marriage and I didn't even admit to, so I haven't admitted any about my child sexual abuse to anybody at this point, to, to mm-hmm. nobody, not to my best friends, not to my parents. Um, I was married several years and had a couple of kids before I even mentioned it to my husband. And I think it was maybe one or two lines. Mm-hmm. He didn't know what to do with that. He he wasn't. Right. He, yeah. 
he didn't know what to do with that. He just, I think he just kind of like, wow, that sucked. You know, I mean, yeah. And then we never spoke of it again. Right. Ever. So I thought I could not ever speak of it. And I thought mm-hmm. I was, I didn't know. I didn't know that how the way that I was shaped from a very young age would have such an influence on my relationships as an adult. Right. And um, so I gave up a lot of my own autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I was losing myself. When you're a people pleaser to the nth degree, you give and give and give until you lose yourself and you mm-hmm. don't know who you are. Um, and you get burnt out. And I was doing that professionally. My work, I overwork and get mm-hmm. underpaid. And because, but, but you know, you got to be the, oh, the stories I could tell you. Anyway, um, let me, so now I'm going to move up to 2019. And my mother got sick. She'd been having, she'd been struggling a little bit with dementia. She wasn't like so far gone, but she had some dementia and she'd had some, um, some cancer Mm -hmm. and, but she got really sick in August of 2019 on August 1st. And I'll just real quick say, um, they thought she had a scratch on her cornea from putting on her makeup because she's really shaky, but turned out that was a misdiagnosis by the time they figured out what it was, which it was shingles and it was behind her eye and um so since it was behind her eye by the time they figured out what it was it had turned to meningitis and gone to her brain oh my heavens there wasn't it just it just got it was just too advanced and Mm -hmm. so she she died on my birthday uh not my birthday i'm so sorry she died on my anniversary Mm. my 37th wedding anniversary wow and it was basically 22 days later, you know, after she got this eye problem. But I, wow. you know, I was with her a lot in the hospital, me and my brothers and, you know, all of us. Because I had three younger brothers, too, who I just loved dearly. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of helped, feel like I helped raise them. Sure. Because uh, I was, by the time they came along, I was like 12, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, when she died... I was, I I knew she was going to die. I was ready for that. I'm a very highly organized person. I try to control everything around me and I thought I was prepared, but it, it, um, it ripped me open. Um, Mm -hmm. how I put it is it cracked me open and everything that had been inside me my whole entire life, what was shoved down came to the surface all Mm -hmm. at once in a big black mess of tar. Mm. And I went into a deep, deep grief. I was drowning for those first few months, just drowning. I couldn't stop crying. I'm not a crier. I haven't cried like my whole life. I think a lot of that has to do with disassociating, disconnecting. Mm-hmm. And, um, but all of a sudden I couldn't stop crying. And before she died, I had gone kind of inactive from the church for a number of years Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't anything any of us spoke about. Um, I didn't, I didn't address why mm-hmm. even really to myself. 
other than I knew I couldn't get up, get out of bed on Sundays anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd had lots of, um, callings, a lot of leadership callings, a lot of, um, I was 10 years in the primary presidency. I was five years as president. I was, I was stake primary presidency. And then I was in relief study presidencies. And I mean, I just gave, 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 and I, and I got burnt out. Um, and I couldn't get myself to church. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. My husband would rip the blankets off and try to drag me out of bed, you know, turn the light on, try to, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, we, we couldn't seem to communicate about it. I don't think he was interested in hearing why he just wanted me Mm -hmm. there. And I, um, didn't know why other than I had this massive cognitive dissonance when I was there, which now I know that I didn't know that then, but I, now I know the name of it cognitive dissonance when you know that something is not right but you're having to live like it is right and you're looking around and you're like I am crazy this is crazy um but I have to keep going anyway I couldn't I couldn't it wasn't um I just could not keep going and I had a daughter out on a mission and she came home and my youngest son went out right after her Two, two missions of my kids I spent in bed on Sundays. And um, but I, it was this big secret that I knew I could never tell my parents. So once my mom died, I, I knew I wasn't going to break her heart anymore by admitting right. that I was no longer a believing member of the church. Because I knew that would, that would break her heart. And also with her dementia, she just would repeat things over and over. And, you know, I would hear one of my other brothers left the church. Well, he admitted to leaving the church before this. And all mm-hmm. I would hear about is, oh, I wish he would just get his life. I wish he would. I can't believe he'd left. I can't. He had the strongest testimony. He was our Nephi. He was, you know, he was holding the family together. He was this most spiritual one. I can't believe he left. And it was just a broken record. You know, mm-hmm. oh, we got to get him back. Got to get him back. And I didn't want that to be me. Right. And so I didn't say anything, which was kind of chicken of me to let my brother take the heat like that. And I love him dearly. But yeah, once she died, then that was in August. And that December, I decided to tell my husband that I did not believe in the church anymore. And I didn't think it would come too much of a shock because it had been basically seven years since I'd gone to church. Mm-hmm. I'd go every now and then, especially if somebody was giving a talk or, you know, welcome homes, farewells, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, but he took it very, very hard. Um, he took it extremely hard. And he wouldn't talk to me about it for several months. I mean, other than trying to preach to me, you know, give me lessons. Like I grew mm-hmm. up with it. I knew. I knew all the things about love and, and not love, about prayer and scripture reading. And, you know, I've had depression, obviously, off and on over the years, some years worse than others. I was in a huge depression at that moment. And the church wants to be able to cure depression with prayer and scripture study. Right. And they teach in a way that insinuates 
if you're not doing the big like five things prayer scripture study family home evening church attendance tithing then yeah you can expect your life to be crap you know right. of course it's going to be right. crap because you're not doing those things yeah it's kind of the answer to everything yeah and yeah. like if someone is diabetic they can they can read the whole book of mormon and bible it's not going to cure their diabetes right you can't pray away shit like that right and i wasn't being punished for my lack of faith i mean it was just right bad thing so in the church if if something bad happens to a good person they're like oh that's their trial and but if something bad happens to a person they think is a bad person, then that's a punishment. Right. And if something good happens to a good person, they're like, see, you're living the gospel. Those are blessings. It's a blessing. If something yeah. good happens to a bad person, then it's like, well, you know, that's just Satan and, and it's going to come around and they're going to be sad in the long run. They're not even really happy mm -hmm. anyway. I don't know. It's just this convoluted way of thinking. Right. Um, yeah, they're not. They're not they're not truly happy or they only think they're happy, but they're not as happy as they could be. And yeah. Yeah. They just want to just act like they live in well, everybody's brain and they know what they're feeling. But I, but I think if you think about it, it, they sort of, they sort of have to think that way because of that. You, you, you said it already, the cognitive dissonance, they sort of have to say that because to believe otherwise would would mean you have to acknowledge that that cognitive dissonance is real and it would kind of disrupt that paradigm of thinking, right? It does. And therefore, yeah. I mean, a faith crisis is really that. It can be, for a lot of people, it can yes. be a huge crisis and a traumatic event. Their whole world. Yes. Turns everything upside down, inside out, and every which way, and scrambles it up, yeah, and spits it back out until it's something you don't even recognize, yeah, yeah. So you kind of have to pick up the pieces and try to figure out what's real and true and what's not. Um, and they call it they call it the dark night of the soul for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And, you know, I've been having, I've been struggling in my sex life. I, at the beginning, we had so much sex. I mean, seven days a week, twice on Sundays. I mean, it was like, yeah. it was my job and I was doing it. But, you know, right. motherhood comes and children mm -hmm. and postpartum and nursing. And, and so you have you have sex when you don't want to and time after time after time and my body, you know, being taken, especially after having babies, it was so climbed on and sucked on yes. and, you know, it, it, yes, the, the blood and the milk and the, I mean, it's just all, oh. you're just a whole mess. Yeah. And then here's your, you know, your, your significant other pawn at you because they have mm -hmm. needs. And so we would go. And that's the thing is like, we, I can remember several lessons like in church like in sunday school they would do a combined meeting of the adults of you know the adults the, the married mm -hmm. people yeah and they'd get the chalkboard in there and they'd go his needs her needs 
Mm. His needs, number one, is always sex. Yeah. And so that's what we're taught. The man needs sex. The man needs sex. The man mm-hmm. needs sex. Everything in my life was about giving my body to someone else. Like mm-hmm. my body was never mine from the beginning. Yeah. I was actually going to say that. Yeah, you said it. Your body is not even your own. At first, it belonged to your husband, and then you bring children into the picture, and now it belongs to them and your husband, and it just doesn't belong to you at all. No, and it hadn't, since I was seven years old, it always belonged to someone else. Mm -hmm. I was always, I didn't feel like I had the power over that part of my life, and that if I said no, then what's he supposed to do? That's his need, right? Right. (laughs) Well, and then also, we're taught... If you don't satisfy that need, he's going to go get it somewhere else. Right. Because because it's this need. So then you're also responsible for his cheating if he cheats on you because, well, you didn't give him enough sex. And so he had to go get it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's very convoluted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I had friends, you know, super judgy friends would be like, well, you know, if his wife doesn't give him blowjobs, then what does she expect? Right. I mean, they would say these things somewhere else. They would yeah. say these things and it would be mm-hmm. perfectly logical to them. Right. That that was a reasonable ex- uh, expectation. expectation. Well, you know, and you said something about, you just said something, you know, from the time you were seven years old that I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but you said, I didn't feel like I even had the power to say anything about this. And that's, that's because quite literally you, you didn't, you had never been taught never from the time you were little, nobody ever stopped and said, Denise, your body is yours. And when somebody touches it, you have the right to say, no, you have the right to have autonomy over your body. Like none of us were ever given that message. And so it, it's absolutely logical when you, you've said it more than once in this discussion, you didn't feel like you had the power to say no. Right. And even if they would say those things, to me, it was like they said, like, you know, stranger danger or whatever, you can, you can say no. It was always, to me, it felt like wink, wink, except. Yes. And because I knew that there was, the things weren't always on the up and up with the gospel. Um, I, I'm a big reader. I'm a voracious reader. And my um, it was an escape for me when I was younger mm-hmm. and my grand, um, my grandparents had given us this big box of all of books of all the classics, you know, the Huck Finn and the, you know, all of them, oh, yeah. all of them, all of them. And I read, I just went through all of them and we had those reader digest convinced books, read all of them. I just, oh, yeah. I just read, I loved those. Yeah. I read everything I could get yeah. my hands on. And I was reading, Same. it was in the seventies when we lived in California and I was reading the Guinness book of world records. Oh yeah. I loved that book. And I came to the part where it said the most wives and it had Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Oh boy. And I'm like <laughs> in the seventies. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, Joseph Smith. No, no. Because, because I, I was taught he didn't, it was Brigham Young that did the pokemi. You know, it was Brigham Young and it was because of the widows and the crossing the plains and the yada, yada, right. yada. And but here I'm looking at this Guinness Book of World Records and I'm like, they got, they got the number of wives. They've got names. They've got like, I know they researched this stuff. 
And so I, I suspected that the Guinness Book of World Records got it right. But for some reason, the church had a different narrative. Mm-hmm. And so I always had that going on in my brain. You say one thing, but you're doing another. Or you're putting on this show, you're doing this thing, but there's all this other stuff that's... I don't know. I know. I knew that there was some things in the church that weren't quite right, but I al- and I also feel like it's very much a show for other people. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, we'd get, we'd see these other fam, these nut families in the world and they seemed like they were everything, you know, they had a, mm-hmm. all of the matching the dresses and they all sat and they all had the perfect hair and they all seemed so happy, but then you go visit them and behind doors, I mean, they're effed up. Right. And I, I saw that time and time again. And so my little worldview was things aren't always truthful, but this is how you act and this is what you say. And um, so it, I think that all led to part of this, this whole cognitive dissonance thing that just finally broke, broke me. Yeah. Um, um, so I admitted that I was out of the church in that December. We didn't basically talk about it for pretty much that whole year. Um, or at least the first, you know, you lose track of time. Did you, did you say this was December of 2019? Yes. When I told my husband I was out. Okay. Because that's right when COVID hit too. So that's, that's interesting. Yes. And we were relieved that my mom didn't have to face that. Yeah. And um, uh, my my daughter got married during 2020. And, oh, okay. But at that time, the church came out with a new rule that you could get married outside of the temple and still get sealed in the temple. Before, oh, that's right. if you got married, even if you're active and you're both virgins or whatever, and you got married outside of the temple, they would still make you wait a year because they right. wanted to stress the importance of temple marriage from the get-go. Yeah. Um, but they had changed this rule, so um, which was thrilling for my daughter because then she knew that she could have a traditional wedding and I could be a part of it. And then mm-hmm. they could do their sealing whenever, and I wouldn't be a part of that. Yeah. She's a returned missionary. You know, she knew I was inactive and they yeah. they knew when I had told my husband I had left the church. And so it's very respectful and my kids are just mm-hmm. amazing. They're loving and beautiful. Um, That's awesome. And, and just as a side note, her, her reception did get can- canceled because of COVID like a week before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we, and they... So many... So many losses during COVID. It was, it was a crazy time. In my mind, that yeah. whole year is a black hole. It really is. My my own child lost out on high school graduation. Yeah. 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 It was just a weird, weird time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that summer, you know, was so... The whole George, George Floyd stuff was going on. And it was a yes. really, really big traumatic year for America. It really, it really was. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're ever going to recover from it. I have to agree. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that, I hope that we will. I hope that, that it will open some eyes and open some it, new ways of thinking, but I, <laughs> it, it will, but it's going to take a couple generations. Yeah. I was going to say, but I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> 
Um, my husband and I, we tried marriage counseling for a while. Um, but it just became evident that it wasn't going to work. I wouldn't really ever have autonomy. I don't know that he would ever. He wanted to choose me instead of the church. It's not like he chose the church over me. He wanted to choose me. He just didn't know what that meant or what that looked like. Or we, we couldn't figure that out. And by then, yeah. we'd had so much distance in our marriage. We had grown apart. You know, all mm-hmm. those years I didn't go to church. and We didn't communicate. Um, we weren't communicating very well about our sex life. Mm-hmm. And like there were times when I would be, um, when I was nursing babies and I would look on the internet, is there some kind of an herb that I can order for him to take away his sex drive so that yeah. I wouldn't have to feel guilty? Cause I was, I didn't like to ever say no, but then I would feel guilty if I did. And I couldn't live with that. And um, then it was making me resentful. And we just gone, it just, you just do that for so long. And honestly, I don't know how you can recover from that. Right. Um, well, and then you, you add on to that this this history of child sexual abuse that you had never really processed or I mean you had said you know I just thought I could swallow that down and it would kind of we don't have to think about that we don't have to go that can go away that also plays a factor in things too yes um so we 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 wound up getting divorced Mm-hmm. And um, so it hasn't been quite a year. Uh, we separated mm. on my birthday in July of 2021. And um, we were divorced by November. So here I am. Um, there were just a few more triggers that got to me to this point of where I'm finally talking about it. Um, besides my mother's death, which, which was the hugest, that was the huge catalyst to, um, that was the most life changing thing for me because mm-hmm. it opened up all of this and I couldn't put it back in. It's like the stuffing came out and I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't put it back in. Um, yeah. I couldn't get my life to make sense anymore. And, um, I started, um, and for a while after my divorce, I was good. It, I felt lighter. I felt energized. I felt like I had my autonomy back. Um, But then my mental health started declining again. And I was getting worse and worse. And um, I was I was, I was knowing that I had to deal with this trauma from my childhood. And I didn't, I didn't know how to get to that. Um, but I did finally bring it up in therapy. Um, So I told my therapist and she was the first person I'd really told the whole story to. Um, Here I am at, you know, 39 years old, 38. And finally not 38, 58, 58 and telling my story for the first time. I also admitted to my, very best friend of 30 years that um, that had happened in my past, but I just kind of brought it up and she didn't ask any questions, really any questions. And 
we just kind of moved past it. Like I felt like I had to just mm-hmm. say. Um, then some more. I just got more and more fragile with my mental health. And my um, my best friend said some things. It was when Roe v. Wade was overturned. Oh, so just recently. Yeah. Um, and she had said, there's no reason for anyone to ever get an abortion. And when she said that sentence, um, it was a huge trigger for me. Mm-hmm. I actually kind of I had another mental health breakdown and I've been having them and having other stressful things happen during these, you know, getting my house, my dad, my childhood home uh, on the market and empty net mm-hmm. of all the belongings. You know, we put my dad, my dad is in a kind of an adult living condo now. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these different, so many traumatic things that happened between then. And then when she said that um, physically, my body just went boing and, um, I started, my body was having these um, convulsions Mm. and I would start shaking and I couldn't stop or I'd be twitching. I would have like, um, like if you can picture somebody with Tourette syndrome and they're constantly like moving something Mm -hmm. in their body, that was what was going on with my body. It was, I was having a very physical reaction that I couldn't control. And I, I went into therapy that, the day after I had this breakdown after, I mean, my, my, my friend, she didn't intend to, for it to be so harmful. We just had different yeah. views. She was adopted. I understand her view. Um, for mm-hmm. me, it's not about abortion. It's about autonomy. Um, right. I, because it took you your entire life to get yours back. It was, it was a lifetime. And if mine yeah. had gotten pregnant from my brother, Mm-hmm. To me, that would be a reason to maybe not carry that baby. That would be very traumatic to have to give birth to my brother's baby. Yes. And for her to mm-hmm. say there is no reason. Mm-hmm. There is no reason for anyone yeah. to ever get an abortion. My my head took that and I snapped. And... Um, and, and knowing that if I had gotten pregnant back then, I would have had to most definitely give birth to my brother's baby. I mean, that was the 70s. Mm-hmm. There wasn't right. a choice then. Right. Um, and, and not only would you have had to have given birth to that baby, but the, the, the shame oh. that would have surrounded that whole experience, like, you know... It, Back in that time, you probably would have been sent somewhere else to live until that baby was born because, you know, we don't, it's a big secret, quiet thing. We don't want to, we don't, you know, it's shameful. We don't, it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't want anybody to know about this. And it just re-traumatizes you over and over. And then, like you say, to have to birth a baby that you never asked for, that was put in you against your will, and then to have to go through the motion of birthing it. And that creates its own set of hell too, because 
more than likely you also would have given that baby up for adoption if this had anything to do with church. And that's also a dichotomy in feelings because although you don't want that baby, you didn't ask for that baby. It's traumatic to get pregnant, traumatic to birth it. There is also trauma in taking that baby and giving it to someone else as well. Oh, of course. The whole thing is just so riddled with trauma. It's just, it's just one big ball of trauma. Yeah. And it wouldn't be, I mean, like I, I could have been 12, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm an obstetric nurse. Mm-hmm. I care for mothers who have given birth to babies. I have cared for 12 and 13 year old girls. I have cared for young girls who have birthed babies conceived by their fathers. It's, it's, it's horrific. Yeah. 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 People think that that's a rarity and I'm, I'm here to tell you it's not. It is not. Yeah. Because we don't talk about it. Because we don't talk about it. And I will die on this hill that we need to be able to be in charge of our own bodies and our own choices about our reproductive systems. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll die on that hill with you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that actually destroyed that friendship. We haven't been able to speak since. So, yeah. So so that was another intimate relationship that I'd had probably. I mean, obviously I was in many ways better friends with her than I was my own husband, Mm -hmm. you know. So, um, it's another loss. It, it, it was just like, you have, it was 30 years of the only person I could really talk to about everything and under the sun. And, yeah. um, so my body's deteriorating. It's going into these, these, um, involuntary muscle movements. Um, plus pinching. I couldn't stop pinching myself. I, it was like, I was going through the pro. I don't know. I feel like I had, a, I reverted to seven years old and was going through it now. I, I, yeah. I, I was, um, this sounds so ridiculous in junior high, but I actually was doing some cutting mm-hmm. and, um, with a razor blade on different parts of my body. And mm-hmm. I, I was experimenting. I was in just such a huge amount of pain. I didn't know what to do how to make it stop. I couldn't live in my body. I was in so, people don't understand that depression can turn to pain. Yes. Depression and anxiety is pain. And Mm -hmm. I was um, forced to face all of this. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was, um, since my mother's mother passed away, I mean, I've had lots and lots of suicidal ideation. Um, Mm. It was the most intense during this period, which actually is just like last month. I'm so sorry. And, um, and I had a couple of different plans in place and I was trying really hard. I was paying, been paying so much money on therapy and, and different things and um, trying to sign up for things that I felt like could help me. And, um, I was at a point, I was at my breaking point where I thought I'm either going to die or like I have one last shot and, um, I'm either going to have to be an inpatient somewhere at a facility, mm-hmm. but then I 
I had heard about this ketamine treatment. Mm-hmm. And so I had a ketamine treatment and I've, I've had um, some ketamine treatments and they have pulled me out of my suicide, suicidality. Mm-hmm. It's completely pulled me out of that. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Um, I have a long way to go still mm-hmm. in my healing because um, I'm, I'm working on it, but I'm working my ass off. And yeah, but that gave me uh, a little bit of a break, kind of a reset, kind of a reboot of my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, these last few years, I've had this lump in my throat that won't go away. And I've especially this last year, and I felt the need to tell my story. Yes. And if I can get it out there and get my voice back, that's, Mm -hmm. I think that that's going to go a long way in helping me on this road to healing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there's ever a point where you, that you reach, you can say, okay, I'm well. Sure. But, um, I'm, I'm better than I was a few weeks ago. And I, and I'm hoping in a few weeks I'll even be better than that. Mm. Um, I will say that uh, so it's been such a relief to not have that pressure for sex this past year. Like I would yeah. be so low and down, and I'd come in my room, and I'd be so grateful. I didn't have to say no to somebody that night. I didn't have to feel guilt for saying no or I didn't have to say yes but not enjoy it or want Mm -hmm. to be there because it's just a loose loose situation yeah and I'd gone I'd done that for so many years that it killed it it's not my husband's Mm -hmm. fault right it's not yeah he was never equipped he was Mm -hmm. never prepared emotional health is not part of our curriculum in the church. And the it's thing not. about Mormonism, it's high, it's a high demand religion. And so mm-hmm. it's you're when you're, you're, when you're fully in, you are, it's in everything. It's in every waking moment. You're you usually have a calling and, mm-hmm. and you have ministering people, you know, that you have to look mm-hmm. after. And, it's all about doing, you know, the big five things and then give, mm-hmm. give, 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 you give. You sacrifice everything. Yeah. Give to so the little stream all day long. Mm-hmm. And they have these, you know, women's conferences and things and they try to, you know, and I would go to those and try to get re-energized, but it just got harder and harder to push that rock up the hill. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's a, it's a healthy place for many people, but not everyone. And Agreed. I wish that the members could see that, that there are so many people that really are better off. Just admit it to yourself that they're better off, not in the church. So I guess I would just like to, you know, in wrapping this up, just kind of give my opinion of some of the, um, the after effects. This is, mm-hmm. this is why I want it to be addressed and I want it to be acknowledged. I want people to talk about it. Um, because to, to me, if I were to list off some of these after effects, even though you think, Oh, it happened such a long time ago, there's nothing 
There's no phrase. I've come to hate worse than it's in the past. Leave the past in the past. Right. Because I don't go around. I don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm so sad today. I was abused when I was seven years old. I was, you know. Right. I don't do that. You don't think about it. But it shows up right. in your way. It shows up in your body in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And and it has all these ripple effects that are mm-hmm. from that. But you wouldn't necessarily, but you know, I'm not dwelling on it. I'm never, I've never dwelt on it. Well, and you, and for so long, you don't even know that A equals B. For so long, most of the time, we didn't even know that, oh, the reason I'm having all these issues here is as a direct result of the things that happened to me back here. Absolutely. Wait. And it and it's until you make the connection, you're, it, you can do the big five things. You can do all the things. You can even take medication, which is helpful for some people and is medication has its place. But until we make the connection and actually deal with that stuff, you're, you're right. And I'm, I'm, I'm making an assumption here that you've, you've heard of the book, the body keeps the score. I've heard of it. Yeah. It's a, it's a book by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He is a world renowned expert on trauma and the top, the title of the book, the body keeps the score. It is so self-explanatory because he, the entire book is about that very thing. We can push all the emotions down. We can repress the memories. We can try to forget our bodies will never forget. Our bodies will always remember and our bodies will react because they want to heal. And so that's when we start having the physical symptoms because our bodies are finally like, Hey, listen, if you're not going to deal with this crap, I'm going to start getting physical here because this is going to destroy you from the inside out. And that's when we get the chronic pain issues or gut, any gut. Exactly. The gut and is so tied to trauma and emotions. Sometimes I think the gut's more tied to it than the brain is at least tandem hand in hand. It's a phenomenal book. Um, it changed my life dramatically. Just it was so validating to understand when I read it, like, oh, this is why I react a certain way in certain situations because I had this happen to me before. It's everything that you have described today, you're 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 describing Dr. Vanderkolk's work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. People don't understand why this happens. And it's not like you can't, you know, leave the past in the past. Look forward to the day. Like, pull yourself up with your bootstraps. Yeah. Okay. Right. Suck it up. Suck it up. Buttercup. (laughs) Yeah. My body and my brain aren't cooperating. You know, this, I can't. So to me, those are the lasting effect, the disassociation, the intimacy issues. Um, that my body mm-hmm. is there to mm-hmm. be used. Um, that, I mean, even like I was just, I was always teased and tickled. Oh my gosh, we'd be tickled so much as, I hate it, I hate it. I hate it. Um, I, I mean, a guy that I worked with, I was telling him that I was getting teased at school and by my friends, you know, but they thought it'd be funny to put duct tape in my hair or put me in a locker or whatever. And he'd be like, Denise, you walk around with a, a sign around your neck that says abuse me I'm like 
what? How could he even, how mm. could he say that? How could he look at me? Does that, is that really what he sees? Is that what everybody sees? That I walk around with a sign around my neck saying, abuse me? Um, I feel like mm. that, that men have to have their needs met. It's who meets them isn't as important as having the need met. Um, right. That, you know, if they need to do this thing, then you have to be there as the vessel for them to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how it is. Um, I think the effects of childhood sexual abuse is um, confusion about your body's responses. Mm-hmm. Um, about this is against my will, but my, is my body responding? I don't know. Am I... Um, Mm-hmm. getting wet what is that is it mm-hmm. and then it carries over into your adult sex life like okay it's okay now for my body to respond and if so how and where do i where does it be- right where do you get that point where it becomes wrong and it and i couldn't ever get past that point of where from my own needs being met it would be wrong and it continued into my right. entire marriage and yeah um and everything in my opinion the messages that we were taught in in our religion is it reinforces all of these beliefs it doesn't contradict mm-hmm. them um men are not accountable oh, or capable that's that's such a profound point you just made that's a really profound point you said you just said you just said the messages that we get in church don't don't contradict those things they they reinforce them yeah and that creates so much confusion in our bodies it does because it a lot of it is also subtle but your body hears it mm-hmm. um i was taught that oh yes it does 100% mm-hmm. um so yeah, men are not accountable or capable of controlling their sexual needs mm-hmm. that we need to mm-hmm. put up and not complain about it. If you want to be, you know, a good wife, mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. if you turn down your husband, you're wrong because mm-hmm. it's their number one need and they can't help it. Right. And which is kind of infantilizing them, but you know. Again, we're insulting their intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And and so my therapist, I never really heard anybody put it this way before. But, you know, when we, so, you know, the whole big, um, recently in the news, this AP article was released about um, this bishop in Arizona who. Um, yes. Yes. This this dad had admitted to sexually molesting his daughters. Um, the bishop didn't report it to the authorities. Um, there's a big long mm-hmm. part to the story, um, but it, it turned out that it was it kept happening for seven years. Once those the bishops, more than one bishop, found out about it, it was never reported to the authorities, um, mm-hmm. and. So these, these little girls were even a few months old, uh, were being sexually molested and abused and it was put on the internet and how they discovered it was like in New Zealand, you know, these, 
cops in New Zealand saw it and they, you know, contacted Homeland Security and, you know, in the roads led back to this dude in, mm-hmm. in Arizona. And um, so this has been in the news and I was talking to my therapist about it and because, you know, it's just bringing up all of this stuff. This is all happening. This is all getting me to this mental breakdown. And um, she pointed mm-hmm. out that in the church, it's lumped in with the other sexual sins. So there's no sex and there's sex. No sex is good. And all these other things are the mm. same. So basically any sexual sin is in the same category as like maybe making out as a teenager, fornication. It's mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. the the consequences aren't like the same. It's, it's right. If they're not, I don't know how to, to put it. They're not considering the victim and right. They're thinking about that. This man had some sort of a sexual sin. So maybe he needs to stop taking the sacrament. They don't go look at this, right. this child that's been abused. What can we do to support her and help her? What can we do to support her and get her out of this situation? It's more the focus is on mm-hmm. this priesthood holder. You know, this is going to ruin his life. And, and I'm, and I'm, it's not just this right. guy. I've seen it. It's widespread in the church. I have nephews that have been mm-hmm. called out uh, for being sexual predators. And mm-hmm. basically nothing is done. And there's multiple victims, multiple. Um, Mm-hmm. It is widespread, and people aren't talking about. It. Even my mom is like, it is. Had told me one time when you know she had some uncle or neighbor or something that did something, and she's you know like, oh, you know, it's like it's part of life. Oh, you know, oh, you too, yeah, that happened, right? And right, like, oh, it's just so so normal. We you know, it's so much bigger than us. We can't stop it, so we might as well just, you know, I guess that's just how it is. Yeah. It's like, too bad. You know, that sucked. Sucked. That sucked. It really wasn't fun. That was, that must have been awful. And then there, that's it. Yeah. And there's no support. And, um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's time for that to be over. Um, I think that we need to shine a light on it and we need to spread the word and we need to make sure that girls know mm-hmm. that they do get to choose what happens to their body mm-hmm. and that their body is mm-hmm. their own. Absolutely. And, and, and also that, that they, that girls need to understand or any victim of abuse needs to understand they do not own They have no ownership in that, that there's no shame. They don't have any ownership. You're right. Every time someone speaks, we shine a light. Every time someone speaks, we make it okay for one more person who hears the story and says, oh, okay, that happened to me too. Maybe it wasn't my fault. Maybe I've been blaming myself all this time when I really didn't have any part in it. Because they were never taught and they were never protected. 
Right. And they don't even know. I mean, when they're young, they don't, they don't know anything. They don't, they don't know that what sex is. They don't know about, they, they're not, we were, especially back then, we were so uneducated. We didn't know anything about our bodies and we didn't, I, right. everybody's too scared to talk about it. If you talk about it, then that will happen. That's, that's their idea about sex education. If you talk about it, then that's going to make them want to oh. have sex. Right. Right. It, it's the same with a lot of other topics too. If we, if we talk about suicide, people are going to commit suicide. That's not true. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about this so people know that there's hope and there's help available, you know? Mm-hmm. So something you said earlier about um, protecting the abuser, that it's not about the victim. One kind of theme that I've heard from other people who've who've I've either read their stories or heard them tell their stories. I've I've heard this more than once that church authorities sometimes have said, we don't want to report to the authorities because if this person winds up in prison, they won't be able to get the spiritual help that they need. If they're, if they are on the outside, if we can keep this quote unquote in house, then we can get them the spiritual help that they need, which completely discounts the victim in the whole situation. hundred percent. That's what I'm saying. It's all about the perpetrator. And that mm-hmm. child is, you know, be extra nice to her. She had a rough time last year, you know, right. um, in my mind that, so learning about church history and learning about, the roots of Mormonism starting with the treasure hunting and with Joseph Smith and the polygamy and Joseph Smith learning that he was married to other men's wives, um, mm-hmm. polyamory. I mean, and this is all, this is not anti-Mormon. This is all on the church's website. Um, right. It's, it's men, uh, women have been treated as belongings and objects since the get-go mm-hmm. and the men have been in charge of the church for so long. They're so used to the patriarchy and they're so, and the, especially the, the top 15 are, they're old and they, um, they don't understand. They have, they have no way to comprehend. They have, they, there's no way for them to mm-hmm. comprehend what it is like from our point of view. They, it, that doesn't even, they can't even, comprehend that we would have a different point of view and not allowing women in major leadership positions. I'm talking about having the priesthood. Um, I think that that's been a major Mm -hmm. disservice to the church um, because Mm -hmm. I think that that would have brought in incorporated more empathy and compassion, um, less victim blaming and If you Mm -hmm. think about the top leadership of the church, even though we're just now starting to learn that Joseph Smith had this history, they've always known. And they've known and they've knowingly withheld it as long as possible. They have knowingly withheld it until they were forced to be open about it. So of course we're second class citizens because if they had cared, they would have addressed this from the beginning. 
it's literally mm-hmm. written into our plan of salvation for and there's no way around it that that is what women are foreordained to do is to birth babies for eternity and to be a multiple wife mm-hmm. and there's i know a lot of members of the church yeah, will say it's in dnc 132 yeah and, and, and members of the church will say, well, I, I, I love the church, but I just don't believe in polygamy. I don't believe in that part of it. Well, I, then you don't believe in the church because that is the, when you get down to the bottom line, to the very bottom line, it's women are going to have babies eternally and the man is going to be the God. And they say we're goddesses, but we're just, we're just a means to an end. Right. We're just a means to an end. And right. so in a way, it's they're working a long con it's a long con because they know in their little heaven which you know i don't believe in but in their mormon heaven they're going to have these multiple wives and the wife's job is to have children and that's that is our reason for existence Mm -hmm. and i just want to raise my hand and say no that's not good enough that's not right and that's toxic yeah Right. Absolutely. I concur. Yeah. You're right. It's written right. It's DNC 132. It's the foundation of the entire gospel. Um, it's, it, it's, it's referred to as the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Um, that's the basis of everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you, yeah, it is, it is everything. If you, you know, you don't wind up, if one of your, in Mormon heaven, if you, let's say your spouse doesn't live as quote unquote faithfully, then you're going to be assigned a different spouse. And the women that live faithfully, that maybe even right. never got married, they're going to be assigned a different spouse. They're going to be assigned to a man. We're objects mm-hmm. in heaven. I was going to say the autonomy, the, the lack of autonomy goes on in heaven as well. You will never fully be autonomous in the church as a woman. No. Yeah. You because in the in their plan of salvation, there has to be a priesthood holder to get you through everything. You cannot do it on your own. You there it is not possible in that paradigm under those set of rules. No. And 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 here's the thing is they peddle a cure, but what people don't realize is the reason why we need the cure is because of their treatment. They put us in a position. They want us to feel shame and mm-hmm. sin. And like, if we're disobedient, even to the tiniest little thing, then, um, the only way out of it is with this magical cure that only they can provide. And um, I, I just think that's a toxic system. So anyway, I guess, I guess that's my story. Yeah. I, I'm continuing on and um, I think I'm over the worst of yeah. it. And I think being no. able to tell my story will be a big part of my healing process. 
and I'm just looking forward to moving forward and finding love and happiness with the relationships I have with children and friends and mm -hmm. yeah um I don't know how much you um know about or believe in um the idea of chakras in the body but when you talk about having this lump in your throat the thing I keep thinking about is this throat chakra and you know we know that when we have traumas or physical ailments in our bodies they can block those chakras and one of the ways of healing that throat chakra is to take your voice back is to speak your truth, is to allow that voice to come out. And I hope, I really hope beyond anything that by telling your story, that your body feels empowered to clear that throat chakra and that that lump in your throat is going to go away. Thank you. I'm, I'm hoping so. I feel like that it's just one of many different areas where I've been forced to not use my voice. And so I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to use my voice. Yeah. I, I think it's so powerful. And every time I, I know I said this before, I'm a broken record. I say it all the time. Every time someone speaks their truth, it gives someone else permission to do the same. Not that they need permission, but a lot of times people feel like they they have to hear it come from someone else so that they can feel safe too. And so while, while we always say the purpose of this podcast is for survivors to tell their stories for their own healing, it really does create a community of healing for so many other people, I heal a little bit more every time somebody else is brave enough to tell their story. And I know other people too feel this way. We, we get messages from people that say, you know, I thought I was the only one that went through this or, oh my gosh, I resonated so much with that story. And now I'm starting to understand that what happened to me that they, that I thought my whole life was just normal actually wasn't okay. And it answers so many questions and I can start to heal and, and move on from things. Um, so I'm, I'm wildly impressed with what you've been through and how it's affected you, but mostly what you're doing with it and the direction that you're going. Well, you know, it's, it's so hard because you have this voice in your head going, why, why should you be able to speak up? You didn't have it as hard as somebody else or everybody has a hard life. Like mm -hmm. my husband had a, hard, a traumatic childhood, but in different ways, you know, it wasn't sexual abuse, but he had, they had the own th their own things and everybody does, you know, mm -hmm. and how have I messed up my own kids' lives? But, uh, you know, I'm not perfect. I've, I've told lies. I've, I've not always reacted the best way. I'm not, I, but so it's really hard for me to, feel like it's okay to say these things because in my mind you can't say them unless you're perfect and that of course then nobody would be able to speak because none of us are perfect but it's really hard to not compare traumas and oh yeah yeah I just feel like 
I think that's what makes it hard. I think, and I think that's such a common response. I, it was my own response. When I told my own story, I said that I, you know, I didn't tell my own story for the longest time because that was my thought was, well, my traumas aren't as traumatic as other people's. My traumas aren't as bad. I, so many other people have had it so much worse than I did. And so I, I honestly didn't believe I had the right to, I guess I telling my story might seem like complaining about it. I put that in air quotes. Um, Even when I was experiencing some of my own issues, you know, previously before I'd started to deal with them, I didn't think I had the right to seek help. I didn't think I had the right to ask for anything. I just, this is part of endure to the end. Just Mm -hmm. suck it up, buttercup, Mm -hmm. do the five, the big five, like you talked about and just kind of get over yourself. And, and I remember being so affected by a talk that Jeffrey Holland gave about mental health in, in general conference and just feeling like I really, I should be able to do more to get these feelings to go away. And it, it's just so hard, but I, we just need to keep giving people permission to speak because there is something incredibly cathartic and healing about letting that come out. And my, one of my co-hosts, Kendra, she says this all the time. And I, I say it so many times in so many interviews, she is correct. There is something incredibly powerful about going back and hearing yourself tell your own story in your own voice. I don't know how much you know about inner child work, but for me, it really played into that because you can, it's like you're going back and you're validating everything that that little girl went through. You're validating that that wasn't her fault. She had no shame or responsibility to hold in any of it, that things were effed up for her because of things that were done to her. And really by saying that out loud in your own voice, you're validating and putting your arms around that little girl and and loving on her, which she needed. You're giving her the love and protection now that she didn't get back then. And it's healing. It's really healing. Yeah. 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 It's a journey, huh? <laughs> yeah. It's a journey. You know, and you said earlier too, you're right. I don't think there's ever going to come a time where I'm going to say, oh, I'm magically healed. Mm-hmm. You know, Things are much better than they were before, but I like a lot of every, or maybe everybody else, I still have bad days where I'm in the slumps with things too. And sometimes it's hard to get out of those little places, but um, you're right. It's absolutely a journey. I think it's going to be a journey for the rest of my life. I'm okay with that because the more we work on it, the more tools we have in our back pocket to, um, to deal with them. And it gets just a little bit easier to face some of that stuff when you have the tools to do it. And you've learned how to sit with all your feelings instead of going to the default that we'd been through our whole lives, which is shove, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. very, very, very. Once we really can allow ourselves to open up and sit with our own feelings, it does get a lot easier to sort of work through these things and Um, And like you said, fostering relationships with like-minded people, fostering relationships with people who see you and accept you for exactly who you are, exactly the way you are, 
not feeling the need to change you. It's very empowering, very healing. I just want to say one more thing. I, I had, I had thought of this analogy um, when I was in therapy and, you know, um, around sexual problems. It's, it's this, the woman's job to her, the only way a man's needs are met is through a woman's body. That's the only way. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're taught in my mind. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've been giving my body since I was very, very little girl. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point where I was so over it. And I had lots and lots of enjoyable sexual experiences. Don't get me mm -hmm. wrong. You know, it's like I said, we were married 38 years. You know, we've, we've been to some places. And, but it's just, it's like, to me, it was like, uh, it's like, you're asking someone to like, it gets to a point where you're asking someone to like, take this poison. Like, I know this is going to kind of make you a little sick or you diarrhea or whatever, but it's my need. So mm -hmm. you're going to have to do it anyway. Yeah. She's so, you know, too bad, so sad. Right. Uh, next day. I'm sorry. You're going to have to take this poison again, but it's my need. So. Yeah. I have no control. What am I going to, what am I supposed to do? Right. I need you to do this. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, then the next day you take this poison again. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was getting to be like for me. Um, so it's getting to be very, very, very unhealthy. And it, it was a yeah. cycle that I couldn't figure out my way out of. Yeah. I, I still haven't figured my way out of that one yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's that whole death by a thousand cuts, you know, it's just one little paper cut today and another paper cut tomorrow and another paper cut the next day. And the next thing you know, you've got so many cuts, you're bleeding out. Yeah. And yeah. And it's from giving of my body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, just really quickly, I'm going to look at this here. I don't know if you know who Mindy Gledhill is. Well, um, I do. I love her. Yeah, I love Mindy Gledhill, too. I loved her when all of us were back in the church. I love her even more now. Mm -hmm. She's amazing. She posted something I just looked up because it, it's so profound, and I reposted it on my own social media account. But it goes along with what kind of half of everything you've been saying today. It, and this quote that she said was, perhaps the grandest theft is when an institution takes something that already belongs to you, your soul, makes you think it's not yours, and then sells it back to you for a price. Yeah. And we're still paying the price. That's the problem. We're still paying the price. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to be paying the price for a long time. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 In the name of cheese and rice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, something else I just wanted to throw out there. I don't know if you meant to use the word polyamory or if you meant polygamy, but I just wanted to throw it out there so that, because we might have listeners that might get kind of mad at us if we don't clarify it. 
there there are a lot of people out there that do practice ethical polyamory, um, which is which is okay when everybody is a consenting adult and everyone's in that relationship as consenting adults and they're all communicating together. I don't, what Joseph Smith and Brigham Young practiced was actually not polyamory because there was no consent on the part of the people that they were involved in. Um, And so I just don't want listeners to be upset about that because um, consent is a big deal. Consent is a really big deal. No, I agree a hundred percent. So this is, this is how I feel about it. Um, polygamy, polyamory in and of themselves, they're not an issue as long as all parties involved are of age. Yes. And they have informed consent, yes. which means completely informed. Right. Does it mean they find out later on that something wasn't on the up and up? Right. Um, they have to have an understanding of the situation. Men and women do grown ass adults. Mm-hmm. As long as they have consent and inf- informed consent yep. and they're of age, mm-hmm. have at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, I, that's I, how I see I, it I fully too. support it. And I, I, I would vote to support that. It's just when, um, for instance, in the FLDS community that polygamy it's, it's used to keep women down in a system of oppression and they're treated as objects. So that's when it becomes toxic and also obviously the anything underage. Yeah. And I wouldn't consider, even those women say, yes, I do. I don't consider that informed consent. Not at all. Because they don't. They're not shown the whole picture. No. No, that's not actually consent. That is. They're using, they're spiritually abused. Yes. what they're. They're, they're, they're holding their, I mean, I put it in air quotes because I don't believe in it anymore, but they're, they're holding their eternal salvation over this. This is. This is relationship by threat. This is, and and then they make you believe that you're consenting, but you're not, that's not consent. That is not the definition of consent. It's spiritual manipulation. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 My issue is back in early days of the church, that my issue with it is that it was kept hush hush. Uh Uh-huh. It was denied for decades. Now they're trying to say, no, we never denied it. Whatever. Mm-hmm. That's bullshit. Right. Um, that's gaslighting. Yeah. Because I lived it. My parents were all in. They were. They read all of, they were all in. They were John Birch Society. I mean, they were everything. I, I know what was taught. Same. And um, so don't give me that. And And because that's what I blame them for is, Lies of omission, mm-hmm. outright lies, mm-hmm. whitewashing, oh, yeah, um, denials, mm-hmm. and zero apologies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that part's really hard too because even when they come out and admit, hey, well, they won't. They won't say we got it wrong. They'll frame it as new revelation. But there will. There is no apology. There's no. There's no true restitution. Um, yeah, and that makes it, that makes it really hard. I agree with you. Um, I I also, I'm a little bit younger than you, but not much. And, um, I grew up same way. None of this was ever taught. I, I tell people all the time. I, I don't really think the church was quite counting on the power of the internet, um, 
because once the internet took over, it, they they sort of can't hide things anymore, and so they have to backtrack. And they and 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 truthfully, if you think about it, they're in a no win situation because if they admit that they did these things, then it makes them look. It's going to make them look guilty to their members. And if they don't admit that they did these things, then it's going to just make them look like liars and they're going to lose people either way. So, yeah. And and they're kind of almost at a tipping point right there. They're either going to lose the younger generation or the older generation. Exactly. And I think now they're getting, they're willing to let go of the older generation because uh, they're still going to be, even out of those people, they're going to be still believe no matter what. Right. That are going to completely shut their eyes to any anything um, negative about the church. Yeah. Um, but they want to keep the younger ones coming in because that's where the money is. Right. That's, right. you know, those people, that's where there, any growth is. And they're noticing <laughs> that this generation coming up isn't having it. Oh, yeah. You know, I say that all the time. Like I always say this younger generation, I believe, is going to save everything because they yeah. they don't stand for bullshit. They're they're very inclusive. They don't stand for injustice. They don't stand for a lot of these things. They're very compassionate. Um, and they're calling out the older generation for these old boxed in racial, prejudicial misogynistic, homophobic belief systems, and they're calling them what they are. You know, you, they're not allowing people to hide behind, well, this is God's law and we just don't understand it. They're like, no, you don't get to get away with that anymore. It's causing harm. It's causing widespread harm. And I think you're right as far as, you know, letting go of the older generation. And I've heard, I mean, I have older people in my own circle. I've heard them say, when confronted with certain things, they will say, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's in my blood. I've been raised in it. I go back seven generations to the pioneer times and it's just, it's just in my blood. So it's just how it is. It's just, you're right. They're never going to, they're never going to open their eyes. And truthfully, it's painful. It is, it is incredibly painful to open your eyes and see these things and admit them I say all the time, I don't think we can heal from this stuff unless we're willing to like see it, own it, and then sit in the discomfort of, oh my gosh, this is not okay. And I belonged to a system that kind of perpetrated some of this stuff for so long. And so, you know, I, I say to people all the time, I have a lot of compassion for people that are in the church because I do too. I was one of those people. I get it. Mm -hmm. When you are taught something your entire life, it takes a massive shift for you to see it otherwise. It just does. And there are some people that unfortunately are never going to see it. And so I, I do I have a lot of compassion for people. Yeah. And I, and I just, I just love the member. I, in my mind, um, the members just, they just want nothing but the best for everybody. Yeah. They're just good loving, warm-hearted fun. I'm going to a trick or, trick or trunking this weekend. You know, yeah. it's going to be, um, have no, no problem. I mean, there's some, you know, obviously I'm aware of, you know, plenty of bigoted people, but, yeah. um, uh, by and large, the, the lay members of the church are just good and they just don't know. They just, they just don't know. Exactly. You don't know what and, you don't and, know. And, and, 
and, and I think the system works really well for a lot of people. Absolutely. Especially if you are, um, you don't have any kind of neurodivergence at all. Right. Um, nope. And, no, and you're not queer or don't have queer kids. <laughs> exactly. You know? And you never will. Or you're, or you're <laughs> like, white. <laughs> right. White, middle class. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what works for right. them, Let's face it. Right. If, you know, and the, and the truth is it does provide a sense of community for a lot of people. Absolutely. And that's the hardest thing because now we're out, I'm out on my own and I don't, regret it right um but honestly one of the hardest parts about being real with people is i don't want them to say see you're in this depression and you were suicidal because you left the church yes and that's kept me quiet for a long time Mm -hmm. but that's not the reason why that is not it has nothing to do with it and i am a thousand percent happier and i love people a thousand percent more and oh, genuinely. I say that all the time now. Yeah. You see people was, for who they really are now. Yeah. I mean, I didn't leave the church because of these historical problems. I didn't know. I wasn't aware of them until I left the church. Yeah. Um, I left the church because of how the LGBTQ community was being treated, Prop 8, and all of that. That started my cognitive dissonance. And then... um. I left for social reasons, but I stayed out because of all of it is, um, it's, I see as a, as a system, a harmful system. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. I, I concur. I agree. But everybody's got to come to that conclusion on their own and in their own space and time. Um, yeah. you know, you can't, and I, and I say all the time, my goal is never, ever, I don't aim to drag anybody out of the church. I don't aim to do any of that. If it's working for you, that's awesome. All power to you. Run with it. Um, but I will be a safe space for anybody that wants to leave or needs somebody to talk to. You can come and talk to me. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you are on a pathway of reclaiming yourself, all the parts of yourself, your your autonomy, your, your soul, your sexuality, whatever it is that you're just reclaiming all of you. And I, I, I think, I hope the more that you embrace that and do that, you're just going to keep healing and things are going to get better and better. Yeah. Thank you. That was just the, the main thing that I, I could hope for is if someone would just address this sooner than when they're almost 60. Right. Yeah. We have so many people that come on that are 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even that are, yeah, it's like, man, what, what could, what lives could we have lived if we had addressed Mm -hmm. this so much sooner? And I don't live in a place of regret, but there is that thought that runs in the back of your head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciate your vulnerability. I do. You have no idea how many other people you will affect by telling your story, but most of all yourself, yourself. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Latter-day Survivors. You can find us on the web at latterdaysurvivors.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Latter-day Survivors. And we're on Twitter at LD Survivors. As survivors of trauma and abuse, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, 
families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing we are not alone, that there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this. Longer will you suffer in this life? 